Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Unmasked. I am your host, Neil Getzlow. As always, thank you so much for coming on this journey with me. I'm so appreciative of all of you that are here listening this week. And if you happen to be new to this podcast, I am very appreciative and glad that you found found this show. Uh, hey, if you get a chance, scroll through older episodes, uh, especially the first four talks about my journey so you can learn more about me. You can also go to neilgetslow.com and, and learn more about my journey there and also check out uh, the book I wrote about my journey. It's called Unmasked, Conquering Sexual Sin and Walking in Victory. And um, so, yeah, and I just, uh, before we get into the today's episode, I do uh, hope all of you had a chance to enjoy your Thanksgiving holiday. Hope, hopefully you had a chance to get a little bit of rest, recharge yourself before heading into the holiday season. Uh, I had a chance to, well, yeah, I had a chance to serve my sister for a change. And I uh, went to St. Louis over the Thanksgiving holiday for uh, my niece's wedding. And um, my mom has uh, early onset dementia. And so my sister, Lisa, works so hard to take care of her. Uh, she handles all the phone calls and, and deals with a lot of stuff that um, that myself, who's out of town, and my sister, Dory, in South Carolina, out of town as well. So um, we don't get to see the full extent of what Lisa goes through. So this weekend, we served her. And we distracted my mom for the weekend and just let Lisa fully enjoy uh, her daughter, my niece, uh, getting married this weekend. And, and it was it was awesome. And I even told Lisa it was she looked so joyful and content. It was and it was the most joyful I've seen her and her husband in a long time. And so it just it just filled my heart up. And I'm just I'm just so blessed that I had an opportunity to serve her because she serves our family so much. So thank you, Lisa, for that. All right, let's jump into episode number 41. And today we are unmasking the journey of Allison Phillips. Uh, Allison is the co-founder of the Human Trafficking Training Center. I had a chance to meet Allison a few weeks ago uh, at the screening of I Will Rise. And she is in that uh, documentary, which um, covers the story of of Christine McDonald and her uh the life that she led and in, in coming through being sex trafficked across the Midwest. But then it also features some other players, a couple other people that you've that you've heard on the show before, Russ Tuttle from the Stop Trafficking Project and Lee Gibson from Relentless Pursuit Outreach Recovery. Um it's it's amazing how many resources are in Kansas City um, that are are fighting against sex trafficking. And uh, and Allison is right there at the front lines of this. And um, Allison has a fascinating journey. She went from being an airline pilot to um, working in the Missouri Attorney General's office um, on the sex trafficking task force, which uh, got her a lot of connections through law enforcement that way. And then a few years ago, she decided to um, break break away from the AG office and go out on her own. And she's now providing resources and education to law enforcement on on how to combat sex trafficking. This is a, a another important interview. Uh, I'm just very blessed and honored that I'm able to share Allison's story and, and raise some awareness around the Human Trafficking Training Center. Uh, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If if you like it and um, you are so moved, I would just love if you'd be able to share this episode because we need to keep raising the volume around 
the evils of sex trafficking in this world, but there are so many people that are working to slow the demand. Allison is one of them. And I'm just, again, just so grateful for her time. And she was able to come on the show this week. So let's jump into it. Episode 41 of Unmasked, Unmasking the Journey of Allison Phillips. Well, Allison, thank you so much for coming on the podcast this week. I I really appreciate it. Um, You know, um, learned a little bit about you and and your organization, uh, the Human Trafficking Training Center through the I Will Rise documentary, which I'm actually just uh, had a conversation, well, traded some emails with Anita. So I think we're going to get her on the show um, coming up soon. So I'm excited about that. But um, great for, for everybody, why don't you just take a second just to introduce yourself? Okay, sure. My name is uh, Allison Phillips, um, and I uh, am one of the one of two co-founders of the Human Trafficking Training Center. And what we do is we provide skill-based training uh, for law enforcement on on human trafficking. That's that's kind of our main main thing that that we do. And we're, we we um, we train all over the country. And I think in this last year, we've probably trained about three thousand officers. Um, and beyond that, I'm, I'm, um, a mother of three teenagers, a wife, and I got three dogs. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Now, uh, <laughs> I'll be honest to the listeners here before we got recorded, I was mm-hmm. asking you about your faith journey and I wanted to make sure that we capture that here during this interview, sure. but I, I, I think it does tie into the work that you're doing today. So I like how you described it, um, that, uh, Jesus was a swear word. Uh, yeah. as, you were, as you were growing up, because that's, believe it or not, that's how it was for me. I, you know, I grew mm-hmm. up in a, in a, um, in a Jewish household, but it was all, it was a cultural thing. It wasn't, you know, any sort of any relationship with God yeah. or anything like that. So I imagine it's probably, probably similar to what you experienced. Yeah. I, I, I truly had no idea, no exposure. Mm-hmm. I, you know, the only, <laughs> only talk I heard about Jesus was in that context. It was when his name was used as a swear word. So that's what I thought it it was, was that it was just another swear word. Um, so it's, um, I, yeah, I grew up in a a secular environment. Um, I, but I, I I had, um, I had everything. I had every privilege. Um, I, you know, I had a very supportive family, well-to-do family. I was given, um, you know, I was safe. I was given every opportunity I wanted. I could go to college where I wanted. And, um, you know, I had had a really, um, really good childhood. But, yeah, that piece was missing. Um, I didn't know it was missing until I, I think I, I got older. And so it wasn't until I was in my my mid-20s that I, you know, I, I had moved away from my home town where I grew up and I had a new job. I, I was engaged to be married and and my um my fiance, who's my husband now, his uh his family um was a Christian family and they 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 made it a point to tell me that they were praying for me. And and I also had some new coworkers that were also Christians and they would tell me that they were praying for me. And and I kind of remember thinking about that with this sort of attitude of whatever you all just go pray for yourself, but you know, it's not like you're going to stop those people. So, so what could I do? Right. And, you know, I, I, but what was interesting is 
after that happened, uh, some things started happening in my life that were kind of attention getting. And it made me realize that that the God they were praying to was for real and their prayers had power. And that was um, that compelled a response on my part. And so I, you know, I, I spent a little time reading. Um, I, th I think I read a lot of C.S. Lewis and, and uh, I, probably more than anything, I would give him credit for helping me wrap my head around how this could really be. And so I, um, I you know, I just made a decision. And, um, and I, I think when I was, I was probably about 28, I got baptized and joined, uh, joined a Bible study and, um, you know, tried to read the Bible and, and, and just understand what is, what does it mean to, to actually follow Christ and live your life in that way with, where he's in charge and not, not me. Um, you know, I, I think one of the big things that was motivated my decision was I, I just kind of came to this knowledge that if, if, um, if I didn't, I, I was going to make a mess of my life. So yeah, yeah that's, that's where it yeah. went. And 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 unfortunately, I had a giant mess in my life that I had to have Jesus help clean up. But <laughs> he does that too. Yes, he <laughs> which, does, which is good. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and and as you were saying, like so, you really um, through the adoption of of your daughter, really sort of made you realize the the, the dangers of sex trafficking that was out there for mm -hmm. for girls, right? Right. So when. Um, it was about 2009. My husband and I, I very clearly felt that the Lord told us to do this, to adopt this child. Um, she, she was, she's from India. She's 15 now, <laughs> but at the time that we adopted her, she was four and it was, it was about a three-year process to, um, to bring her home to our family. And it was during that time, those three years that we were doing all this paperwork and uh, going through all this whole process of of adopting her that I started to learn about, about human trafficking. And, um, you know, what, what happens to little girls who, who don't have families, you know, who are on the streets, who are destitute, who are orphaned, who, who are not adopted. And, um, I, I was so shocked by that. I was absolutely horrified to learn this. This is the reality that this is going on. And I, you know, I, I was in my late thirties at the time and I, I, I just couldn't, believe that I had gone through my whole life without knowing this. And it just, it kind of busts your whole paradigm. So I really dove into reading more about it and trying to, <clears throat> trying to learn about it. And, and the more I learned, the more I read, the more I, the closer to home that I, I realized it was. And, and that was even, even more shocking to, to know that this was something that had been in my midst my whole life. And I didn't know and it so it meant that the the world it was not what I thought. <laughs> yeah, and that's I think that's a difficult realization for people to come to. I still see that today when when I'm out teaching that that people have a hard time processing that and accepting that. And um, ultimately, it, you know, I, I I think i I had this realization that if someone like me who came from all of this, privilege, really, if, if I hate to, that's, I think it's kind of an overused word, but really yeah. that describes me. Um, if someone who, who, who's 
had all these opportunities, who has resources and, and, you know, if someone like me can't stand up and be a voice and do something about this, then who will, who are we expecting to, to, to respond? So right. that's, that's kind of where it started. Well, and I think it's, it's, it's important that there are voices out there, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, that's one of the things that I, you know, I never understood and never realized myself as a former buyer that, these women, most of these women are sex trafficked. The people, the women that you're, you're finding online. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's like, you know, so I think, um, you, the, you know, uh, David Bennett and I do work for the Epic project and we still hear that now, right? Like that pe men just don't understand that the people that they're looking for are likely mm -hmm. not there willingly. Right. Yeah. yeah. You don't want to believe that could be true. Yeah. That, you know, and I think our, um, our media and the mood, you know, the movies and the narrative that is out there tells us it's something else and it's not reality. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely not pretty women. No, <laughs> the, like, no, it's not. Not at all. Not uh, at now, all. Um, okay. So I know I am curious though, because uh, your bio says that in your previous career, you were an airline pilot. Yes. Uh -huh. so I'm like, that's fascinating to me how you go, how one can go from being an airline pilot, which seems like a pretty cool gig to have. It was, um, but, yeah. but so you, you, you trade that in for a job that's really, you know, focusing in on, I mean, you're putting, you're, you're, you're putting, um, for focusing on the positive angle of it, but it is a dirty job when you, when you're digging into mm -hmm. sex trafficking, it's a job that not a lot of people want to get their hands dirty doing how did how did that transition take place for you so it was kind of a process but but really when i when i look back on it there was kind of this pivotal pivotal moment so i you know i grew my my father was a pilot he had a little cessna so i grew up around airplanes and you know when i went to college i went to flight school got a job um working for an airline and um the the airline i worked for was in uh alaska and so I, I had a really amazing job. We, I got to fly around to all different parts of the state in, in little villages and, you know, native villages. And I had a moment one day where we, we flew, um, we flew a charter up to um, a, a little tiny village up in the north slope of the state. So we're talking way, way up there. Um, Barrow. Uh, you, you just don't really get all further right. north on the, <laughs> on the planet than that. And we, um, the weather was really bad. It was very windy and it was, it was too, it was actually too windy for us to take off. We needed for the winds to die down a little bit before, um, it, you know, our, we were able to, to depart and we, we knew it was just a matter of time of waiting it out. And we had a plane load full of people. They were all native people, their Eskimo tribe up there. And so we were just sitting in the plane on the edge of the runway, waiting for the winds to die down a little bit. And um, and while we were sitting there, um, so you have to imagine in this part of Alaska, it's not like the airports down here where you have like security and all that stuff. I mean, when you when you fly into these villages, the native, you know, folks, they they come right up to the plane on their four wheelers and and load up. It's 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 a very casual <laughs> environment, if you will. So while we were there waiting, um, this older man, he, he was a native Alaskan. Um, he, he probably was in his seventies. He, 
he had just dropped some, his, some family off and was sitting on his four wheeler. And he looked up and he saw me in the cockpit up there. And like, it was like this light went on as he looked at me and then he drove off on his four wheeler. And I thought, well, what, mm. what was that about? Like, why did he look at me like that? And, he, and then he just drove off and he came back <clears throat> probably about 10 minutes later, because we were still sitting there and on the uh, <clears throat> driving his four wheeler and on the, on his lap, kind of in the saddle of it was this of uh, like four-year-old girl. And he, he pointed up to me and he was talking to her. And I, I realized that what he was doing is he was trying to tell her, see, see what, see what girls could do. And that was so striking for me to have, because I just had no awareness of anything <laughs> that, <clears throat> that anyone Cause I was just doing my thing. You know, I, my, my father raised me around airplanes. I didn't really think anything of it. I didn't think that, that I would, what I was doing was any different. And it made me realize that, that a little girl in a little village up there does, doesn't have the opportunities that I have that I took for granted. And so it kind of <clears throat> shown this like mirror on myself that in in the position I was in, in a way that I hadn't really thought about before. And I, I felt like in that moment, what, what God was doing, he, he basically said to me, I, what about her? Yeah. And, and so I, 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 you know, I, it wasn't right away, but I did leave my, my career behind because of that for what about her? What about the other girls who don't have the opportunity, who don't have the resources, who, who have had their sense of hope, their, their self-esteem trashed by somebody who's abused them. And, you know, and I, I grew up with one of my childhood friends. Um, when we were six years old, she, um, she was being abused by, by her grandfather. And so this is a girl who, um, we grew up in a very affluent community. Um, she grew up around the corner from me and was, um, her, her family, they were business owners, very successful people, but she, she was being abused. And, and I, I knew she was being abused and I felt powerless to do anything about it. I remember the way that the adults talked about her because she was a sexualized child, that there was something wrong with her, you know? And I, I, I never told anyone, I never did anything about it. And by, but I, I watched her life go down a different path than mine. And I know, you know, she, she didn't graduate from high school. She had a, you know, she had a baby as an, as a teenager that was raised in the foster care system. She turned to drugs and alcohol. And by the time she was 47, so I'm 50 now, by the time she was 47, she died. They, they found her body in an apartment and it was all the years of alcohol. And so I, I watched, so you hear, you have two girls, you have me and you have my friend, both grew up within a block of each other. And what's the difference between the outcome of her life and mine? It's that abuse. And I, I'm just, I've seen so many young women have that potential of their life taken from them from, from abuse. And so I, I, you know, I, I feel like when, when God chooses us, he, he has some higher plan for us. And so that's, 
that's that's my that's my story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. And you know, I, and I think about that a lot too, because again, from 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 my past, and how crazy is it that oh, both my wife was saved eight years before me, and she goes to the Rock of KC for eight years. Wow. And now, and now, in the Rock of KC, which it has to be like ground zero, at least in the Kansas City area, for for fighting against sex trafficking. And now here I am, coming mm. out of that, and and now being part of that church. It's amazing. I I do think I love seeing God work in those yeah. ways. Uh, and do you get a sense that more there are more voices willing to shout? And, and talk about sex trafficking and more people getting involved as um, from what, you know, from what you've seen earlier in, in your career? For sure. Oh, yeah, I, I do. I, I see, um, you know, I, I've been doing this work for over a decade now, and, and definitely I do see that progress. But at the same time, I also see um, I see lots of resistance. I see lots of um, very misleading information out there about it. Um, I see, um, I see efforts to try to call it something else to try to brand it as sex work or whatever. I mean, when, when, when we're talking about sex trafficking, that, that is at least. Um, so it, yeah, there's, there's progress, but there's, boy, there is a battle. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, and before you went and, and started you know, started the the training center. Mm-hmm. You spent some time working for the uh, Missouri Attorney General's office. Um, so what what did you learn there? I mean, what what were you what were the trends you were seeing while you were working in that that office, especially around the state of Missouri? Because I know this is a hotbed of activity around here. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's a hotbed everywhere. You know, um, and, and the best way I can explain it is, you know, where it. it if you have people, you have crime. You, if you have people, you have drugs. If you have people, you have human trafficking. So it's, it's, um, it's, you know, it's everywhere. Um, but the, the experience of, um, so I was the task force director for the Missouri attorney general's office. So in, in the state of Missouri, the, the, really the statewide task force is under the AG's office. And, um, as in that position, I, um, really, it was such a privilege um, to uh, work with the people around the state that are doing this work. I mean, there really are amazing people uh, doing doing this work. It's really incredible. A lot of them are people of faith, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, Christine McDonald, for example, is on the task force. I know you've you've interviewed her. I think the folks with Relentless Pursuit, you you've interviewed them as well. Yeah. Um, had the privilege of working with them. There, there's an amazing woman. Her name is Carolyn Scroggy in Joplin, Missouri, who has um, a, a, vi- a victim advocacy group there. That's just she's a really incredible person. I, I, you know, and I mean, I could just go on and on. People yeah. who have really dedicated their lives to to fighting this cause, and so to to be in that position to bring them together to the table. And you know, and work on things that were that were making a significant difference um, was just was really an enormous privilege. Sure, and even you mentioned Carolyn. I just had the 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 uh, privilege to meet her last week. Oh, uh, good. Uh, yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah, she is a phenomenal human being. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah. So I'm anxious to learn learn more about her. Um, mm-hmm. 
was there i mean as you you know led this task force with for the state was there was there anything that surprised you as you as you were doing this work of course <laughs> <laughs> yes of course i i think um it, being in that position you know i i had the opportunity to work with law enforcement on this in 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 ways that i i hadn't had the opportunity before um and so i i've always had respect for law enforcement but you know being able to work with with those folks um you know closer um really really deepen my my respect for for law enforcement i i, I think most people don't understand what we what you give and when you sacrifice when you become a police officer um in in this country it's it's really you give your life to it and we we owe them so much um i think what was surprising to me was um well a number of things the i i think people from the outside looking in don't understand the challenge the magnitude of the challenges that are out there in fighting this work there are people who are in positions of power whether that's law enforcement elected officials you know um people really people who have the ability to write checks you know and decide how we're going to allocate resources all of that who do not understand this issue they don't understand what it takes um they're well, not and, and you just had i just saw that in the news today the kansas city kansas police officer who um was charged with yeah in, in sex trafficking yes yes there's there's some of that yeah so there's there's ignorance you know there's apathy and that there is corruption like like what you're talking about there so you have you you know these these folks who are supposed to be doing something about it and you just have these layers of of ignorance and corruption and apathy i i literally um have had conversations with police chiefs about getting their people trained and and was told we don't have human trafficking in our jurisdiction we don't need to be trained like really <laughs> what, what, can you imagine a police chief saying oh we don't have drugs in our jurisdiction and by the way this was i, I won't name names but this is not the police chief of mayberry okay they i, I trust me they have human trafficking in their jurisdiction but but they they just don't they don't know what they don't know and they're in these positions to decide do i want to have my department trained and they're basically saying hey we don't need it and they don't want to hear it yeah <clears throat> so is is that what sort of your your motivation was then to to go out and train you know to open well, up a training center or how did you know how did you make that you know leap from the ag office to um to going out on your own essentially so the oh there's there's a long story that <laughs> I, I i won't go into here but um you can read about it soon okay there, oh okay. yeah uh basically it's um i i realized that you know so we have have these layers of of corruption and apathy and ignorance and it, it basically made it to the point where i could no longer be effective gotcha and, uh, and, and, and nobody really cared to try to fix that. So I, um, there, there are people who are fine with 
saying they have a program, but when it comes to actually putting resources down to make it actually do something, aren't willing. So they will have a they will have an, an organization or a task force or whatever it is in in name for the appearance of it, but they really don't care if there's the integrity of the actual program. Yeah, what I mean, what is the resistance to to this? Is it I mean, is it is it truly just just ignorance over the issue? Or like, I mean, why are people they put the they put a task force in place, but they don't want to use it? What what is the resistance? Well, it it's a lot of work, first okay, of all. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're going to do a lot of work, you need a lot of resources. Yeah. Um, so, so there's that, I mean, you, you know, you, um, you asked just speaking about resources in the state of Missouri, I, I don't think many people know this. There are more people dedicated to investigating cattle theft in law enforcement than there are dedicated to investigating human trafficking. Wow. So that's how we decide how to allocate our resources. Now, I, there's nothing wrong with investigating cattle theft. I don't have an issue with that. But I think we could all say that perhaps, you know, human beings, children um, would warrant more resources than that. Yeah. So sure. so you have that. And then you have people who who don't understand. They don't understand this issue. They, you know, they they see you know, the, the woman on the escort ad or on the street and they think she's a prostitute and they don't understand the ways in which she is controlled, that there is forced fraud and coercion behind it. And, you know, a lot of times these, these folks get arrested for crimes that their traffickers forcing them to commit. And if you have people in positions to decide, you know, are we going to, are we going to arrest this person or are we going to screen for forced fraud and coercion and who don't understand the difference? the wrong thing happens. You know, Christine McDonald, I, I know you talked to her, her, her mm -hmm. story is full of that. Yep. Um, of being mistaken for, for a prostitute when she was a victim. And well, yeah, because you just don't know, you can't just look at someone and, and tell sure. well, they're not trafficked. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I could look back on the situations that I was in and I can honestly say, I don't, if I'm just, looking i could never tell that anyone was being forced or was against the will how would i ever have known mm -hmm. I, I never would have yeah because it's set up to to look like it isn't yeah and the traffickers do that on purpose you know they they set it up to make it look like she is doing this on her own it that's the that's why they call it the game yeah you know or or a trick because that's the <laughs> trick right yeah yeah and um, and so, and then, okay, so you have, you have the ignorance, you have the, um, then you have the, you know, the example, like you're talking about with that story that just came out about the KCK PD. Um, you, you do have corruption in, in government uh, on this and in, in a lot of different ways. I, I, I saw it myself. I know it exists. And when you have people who are part of it, who are benefiting from it, who need to maintain cover, they are not interested in seeing you succeed. And, you know, even on a national scale, we see that with with the whole Jeffrey Epstein, um, you know, story that that we know Ghislaine. I mean, so we have Ghislaine Maxwell in prison, that which she should be, and that's good. But what about everybody else? What about the yeah? What about the pilots who 
who are transporting all these victims everywhere. Yeah, there had and to be accessories to the crime, yes. I'm assuming. What about all the all the clients, you know, the Prince Andrews and the, you know, so forth, who. I mean, who I guess are, in, in you just yeah, I mean, I guess it is kind of ironic that the only person that is taken down in this is a female. Yeah. Well, and, and she was part of it. She she, she was. She was. Not a, yeah. She was not a victim herself, you know, but. But yeah, but it is ironic. I would agree with that. There, she was not the only one. There were a lot of people who were part of it, who facilitated and should be held accountable. Yeah, for sure. um, So they, you can only go so far. I mean, and we did have cases um, where we, we saw that there were people in positions of power who were famous, um, who were involved in this and nobody would investigate. Nobody would touch it. Nobody. So it's, you know, um, how are we going to really move forward when you have that kind of resistance to it? You, um, I mean, I, I even saw people in, you know, command staff type of roles who literally just did not care. They, they know that this is a problem. Um, they, they know that this is affecting real lives and that they just don't care. And that's probably the hardest part for me to understand is that they're, I understand that they're corrupt people. I do. I understand that there are people who are incompetent, (laughs) you know, or, or ignorant. I, I, I understand all that, but the part that I really will never be able to understand is that there are people who, um, know about this, are in a position to do something about it but don't care. That's well, probably the toughest part for me. I don't get that. Yeah. And the sad part is uh, some of these powerful people likely have daughters. Yes. You know, that could possibly be, you know, a victim at some point. Yes. Right? I mean, they, they, you know, and that's, um, that's uh, something that I think, well, we try to, we try to provide that point of view when we're, we're doing outreach for Epic that, Hey, do you have a sister? How would you feel about her being, you know, solicited like this. And of course that changes the conversation extremely quickly. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so before we get into the, the resources and work you're doing um, at the training center, I'm curious about this issue and to see if what your thoughts are on this. Um, I know that there's some conversation around legalized prostitution that that's happening in Canada. And I know there's like some pockets in the U S do you feel yeah. that is going to be a bigger issue uh, in this country down the road? Yes. I, I have talked to some people who, uh, who work in, in lobbying, um, on this and they are, they're very concerned actually. Um, there, there are some very well-funded efforts to legalize prostitution in this country. Um, the kind of the, the front line of those efforts right now are in Oregon and some States in the Northeast. Um, and they, yeah, they have big money. Um, so more money than, than the opposition does to fight it. And yeah. they really only need to win one time, you know, if, if, because it'll really be hard to roll back if that once it's, once it's in there. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned it would create kind of a domino effect um, across our country. And um, it's, it's a, it's a battle we need to win for sure. That would be devastating to our fight on this. Yeah, I, I just talked to um, an advocate in Germany uh, on my podcast a few weeks ago, and 
you know, that's one of the things that she saw that that got her fighting against this was that prostitution is legal over there. And you think, oh, everything is up above board and whatever. But it's like sex trafficking is rampant in these brothels. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think that's what people don't understand is like, this isn't going to just magically make that issue disappear. It's probably no. going to, it's only going to aggravate it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It, it's uh, so the, the folks who are pushing for legalization are, you know, they, they, they cloak their efforts in all of these very reasonably sounding type of, of rhetoric, rhetoric, like, you know, it's the world's oldest profession. It will always be here. We, you know, we need to, if we, if we legalize it, we can make it safer. And, you know, in a, a woman's body, she should have her own choice over it. And, but all of these things are, when you hear their arguments, they're, they're purely theoretical. And the reality of it is something else. And we don't have to theorize about what would happen if we legalize prostitution. There are countries and, and states that have, have done that already. And we, all we need to do is look at, okay, you know, parts of Australia, Germany, you know, certain counties in Nevada, they have legalized prostitution. Why don't we just go and look and see what the impact of that is? And the, the, it, the result is the same every single time. Every time prostitution is legalized, sex trafficking for the purpose to meet the demand for it to, so that there is adequate supply multiplies many, many fold. And it, because there is so much demand, there aren't enough people who want to do it. There just aren't. Yeah. So this, because of the money, it, they have to force them to, they have to coerce them to, they have to create these little fraudulent schemes to lure people into it. People don't want to be a prostitute. They don't. They, the, the way that people become prostitutes is they're tricked, they're coerced, they're forced. That's how. Yeah. They pick the most destitute, the most downtrodden, the most abused, the most, you know, without options. That's who they pick for it. They don't pick the the woman who has every option available to her. That's not what they do. They pick the woman who has no options. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I, and I, you know, and I'm starting to, well, as much as I can sound the alarm on that issue. Yeah. Um, I, I do see it coming that I, I just, and I, I think you're right. And, and, you know, because you can see what happens with gambling and you see mm -hmm. what happens with marijuana not, not these, these issues are not the same, obviously, but, mm -hmm. but once you just sort of, you know, flip the switch on some of these pathways and you, you're never going to be able to get the door closed again on it. Right. So one of the things that, that they, that they use, to to normalize this concept to make make it acceptable in the mind of the public or to rationalize it is they call it sex work yes and here's something i don't think people know many people know that the term even the term sex worker it it's it was a term that was originally coined by pimps by traffickers when they're referring to their their working girl you know, and they basically they would say it with kind of a wink and a nod. You know, she's just a working girl. Nothing to see here. Right. Mm -hmm. She's just it's just work. Well, it's not work. It's not. And I'll explain in a minute why it's not work. But when we use that term, 
we are adopting the language of traffickers and the movement that wants to legalize prostitution in our country has adopted that language because they it's part of how they gloss over the really horrible reality of the of the life of prostitution i don't i don't think many people actually spend a whole lot of time thinking about what that life is like it's humiliating it's degrading it's dehumanizing it's it's really um it's really awful and it's unsafe and it's dangerous and so this notion that somehow it's empowering or that women have a choice in it and i say women when we know it can be men too um but in the deference to the majority that's i i use the female um reference but um but it's not you know the person who has the money is the one with the choice yeah well, it's, it's and, like what well, it's like what Christine says all the time. Sure. She was basically invisible. Like she was just she could mm-hmm. she was she could be thrown away like a piece of trash at any time. Right. No, nobody saw her. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so the reason why sex can never be work is and this is another thing that I don't think people understand is um, when in, in order to to turn my body into a place of business where I am going to have sex with say 15 men today. And let's just say I I'm, I'm an adult. I'm doing this on my own, e- even in, even in a situation like that, which is like 1%. Okay. But let's say I'm a one percenter, right. And I have other choices. I have other options. No one's forcing me to do this. I keep all the money. Okay. If I'm going to turn my body into a place of business where I'm going to have sex with 10 or 15 men, today in order to do that in my mind i have to create a dividing line where or in some way where i say this part of my body from here on down is a place of business it's not allison so maybe i'll do that or maybe i'll create this you know other persona in my head where i kind of take on this alter personality so um or i say i you know i won't I won't engage in kissing or whatever, or I won't act like I like you or something like that. You, what, what I'm describing there is dissociation. It's, I have to check out in some way, whether that's like in my mind or creating this dividing line with my body, I have to do something in my, in my mind to make my body, not my own, to make it a place of business. So I can do what I do. So I can have sex with these 15 men. You have to disconnect in some way. Now, the problem with that is if I do that day after day after day, dissociate like that, it actually causes damage to your brain. Hmm. So it's that's not <laughs> that's not work. It will cause mental health problems. It will cause problems, personality disorders. It will cause problems when you later want to actually go to a a romantic partner, somebody that you care about and try and try to connect. You, you will have difficulty doing that. And you see this, you see evidence of this time and time again. How often do you see like these women who are in strip clubs or on the street and they have a different name? They have that as a protection for themselves because then what they are doing, what's happening to them isn't happening to Allison. It's happening to this other person or they, they will, have certain rules like you can I won't do this or I won't do that. That's why because they're they're creating this dividing line with with themselves. 
And you, you, you see it in the, in the mental health disorders, you see it in their relationships when, they, when they're trying to actually have a romantic relationship with somebody that they care about. They have a hard time reconnecting with their body to be actually physically intimate. So it, it does, it's not, it's not a harmless thing. That, you know, and, and as you're describing that, it, it almost, from the, the male perspective, it almost mm-hmm. reminds me of what pornography does to men. In the same way, when it rewires your brain and right. it ruins your relationships and it right. conflates sex and love and so you don't know what is the real thing and what's just playing in front of you on your phone or whatever, like it is a, a nasty drug. Yes, I agree. Yep. Well, yeah. Um, so let's talk about the work you're doing um, at the um, at the trafficking center. What sure. tra- trafficking training center? Um, what what kind of because you talked about resources and the need for resources. So what kind of resources are you helping to provide law enforcement um, through this organization? Okay, so when when I left my job at at the state, um, I I I had a the opportunity to partner with a, a state trooper. His name is Dan Nash. Um, he he also retired from his job at the same time I did uh, for the same reasons and. Um, he he felt like um, that w- one of the greatest needs a- across our country is 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 having good training for law enforcement and and I would agree and I agree with that. I think you know in in the decade plus that I've been doing this work, there um, the the biggest missing piece in in our effort across the country to make a dent make move the needle to make a difference in human trafficking the missing piece is law enforcement and i think largely that the reason that they are missing is is a training issue i mean you can build a beautiful program where you're helping women you know get get out of trafficking you know like like carolyn has or um or you know relentless pursuit has or the folks at rehope have or you know many of the people across the country who have great um, restoration type programs, rehabilitation programs. But if, and, and if they, if they help these victims get out of the life, but if there isn't a report made to law enforcement, um, an investigation and somebody is arrested, what does that trafficker do who just lost his victim? He goes out and gets another one, right? Mm-hmm. So in, in order for us to be really effective with this, we need to have we need to have law enforcement and, you know, and we can train people. I mean, I'm sure your listeners have see, been to the gas stations. We've been to the truck stops. We see the stickers. If you see signs of human driving, call this number. But what good does it do us if we call that number and nobody answers? Nobody follows up. Nobody does an investigation. Nobody makes an arrest. It's a dead end. And that's, uh, you know, you ask what some of my biggest surprises are. I, you know, from the perspective of a statewide task force director, that's really what I saw from that position, that 30,000 foot view is that law enforcement is missing. And, and really the reason for that is they are not being trained with skills. And that's the difference. You will hear lots of people talk about, you know, training law enforcement, but what they are only doing is giving them awareness. And the analogy that I use to explain the difference is, imagine I I took a brand new recruit straight out of a police academy and I, I put him out and I said, I want you to go out and arrest drunk drivers. But all that I have done to prepare him, to train him to do that work, what I've done is 
I invite Mothers Against Drunk Driving to come in and talk to him for an hour about how awful drunk driving is and how it destroys lives. That is the equivalent of the training that we we give our law enforcement. I ha- but I haven't taught that officer what what does a drunk driver on the road look like? How do I administer a field sobriety test? How do I write up my report? What are the officer safety issues on the side of the road? They need those skills. And the training that's out there largely for law enforcement doesn't have any of those skills. So they are basically getting the same same type of training that we that we give the nurse or the or the truck driver and we tell them to report. Well, the the final line is the police. <laughs> yeah, right. There's no one left for them to report to. So they, you know, they need the skills and and you know, I um my so my partner Dan Nash who who retired from the the state police, the highway patrol. Um, he had, you know, 15 years of investigating human trafficking crimes. And so he, he's really very exceptional, um, across this country that, that I, I found someone in law enforcement with experience investigating human trafficking crimes, who has a victim centered mindset, who understands this issue. And, and he's a really good, um, communicator, good leader. And so, um, yeah, so I, partnered up with him and my my mission is to to you know just get this training out to as many officers as we possibly can and what's what's amazing is um every time every time we do one of our classes every single time we have officers come up to us and they tell us these stories about you know we call them missed opportunity conversations where they they tell us about the stop that they were on and they they knew something wasn't right but they didn't understand what it was and they didn't know what to do and and sometimes some of these officers are very upset i mean we've had a couple of them come up to us in tears crying because they realized that they had this opportunity to help somebody and possibly save their life and they, and and didn't so um but the good news is that we also, after every training, um, usually within a few days, we hear back from one of them about some some call that they were on, and and they were able to make a really good arrest of somebody who needs to be arrested off of our streets, or or help somebody who was a victim, and that's it's very really rewarding. Well, and that's got to be encouraging too to keep to mm-hmm. keep fighting, knowing that that you are making a difference. Do you do you where do you see this this organization going in the future? You see it growing? It is growing. Yeah. It's growing really fast. Every every time we have a training, um, we the feedback we get is overwhelmingly positive and they want to have us come back and do more. You know, um the last training that we did in uh well, it's not the last training we did, but one of the recent ones we did, I mean, they immediately were like, Well, we need to have you come back and do three more. So that that's that's kind of how it how it's going yeah yeah well that's good i mean well i mean i know there's a there's a need for it right so yeah um but it's important that there's that you're able to provide that resource um for people that that aren't a part of law enforcement just for the average everyday folks like me like Mm -hmm. what what can we do to get involved in this issue ah fabulous question um, I, I strongly believe that everyone has something that they can offer and everyone it can make a significant difference in this. Truly. I, I, I want to, I don't want anyone to feel like, oh, well, who am I? What could I do? That's, that's a lie. 
Um, and the way, the best way that I can encourage people to get involved is, is kind of through this process. Um, I think each of us has something that God has gifted us with that's unique in terms of what is your, your time, talent, and treasure? What is your sphere of influence? Where, where do you live and work and play? Um, and, and, you know, that, that kind of thing. So I, I also encourage people to look around in your community at the people who are already doing this work and come alongside them and support them, volunteer with them, show up, pray for them. Um, because it's not easy. And I, I think it would be a big mistake to duplicate an effort that's already underway. When if you, instead of doing that, just join the people who are already doing the work, you know, the good, good people who are doing the good work because <laughs> not everyone is, <laughs> yeah. but um, so you have to be discerning on that, but, uh, and find something that, that, that they need. You know, if, if you work with, with kids in a school environment, there, there are people who can come into the school and provide education for kids on, you know, how to, how to stay safe online, how to look for grooming. Stop really trafficking project. The stop trafficking project. <laughs> Ross Tuttle. Yes. He does a really good job. Get yeah. him into your kid's school. You will find kids who are having, who are being groomed, who are being exploited. They need help. Um, if you have a particular, if, if you have a business, you know, the people at Relentless Pursuit or Rehope, they they need people to you know make meals for the women. They need people to come in and help help the women in the program get their GED, and they need tutoring. And um, there's legal advocacy. I you know right now I'm trying to help a young woman who's who's looking at a, at a 10 year sentence for crimes her trafficker forced her to commit. She needs an attorney, it, and I'm trying to find somebody who would be willing to do that pro bono for her. Um, there's so many ways that people can get involved. And so really, I just kind of ask people to assess what what it is that you have. You know, if you have influence with um, with legislators, you know, we need resources. We need dedicated law enforcement. We need some laws changed. There's so much that can be done. Yeah, that and that's I think that's such a great reminder, because I think oftentimes we probably try to we probably make it harder to get involved than it really is. Yes, because it I is. Think, yeah, I think you're right. There are already so many, and especially, you know, this podcast is produced in Kansas City. So mm-hmm. I, like, I feel like so incredibly blessed that we have all these resources here that right. we can tap into already um, that are that are truly making a difference. So um, I, I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you again to Allison for, for coming on and sharing her journey this week on Unmasked. I, I truly appreciate her time and I, I appreciate everything she does and she is doing she is, like I said, she's on the front lines of the battle against sex trafficking, and she's provided important resources uh, and education to law enforcement. And it's just, um, you know, it's it's awesome what she does. And I'm just still just blown away by the different the, the different people coming together, specifically in the Midwest, to fight sex trafficking with with Allison's work at the Human Trafficking Training Center, Russ's work at Stop Trafficking Project. Lee's work at Relentless Pursuit. Also, Anita Cordell, who is the director of the Isle Rise movie. Uh, she's based in Kansas City. There's just, it's just, um, I feel so blessed that I am I have access to these people and um, 
that they encourage me and that uh, and I'm just glad to be on the same side with all of them. So I'll put a link to the Human Trafficking Training Center in the show notes so you can learn more about Allison and her uh, partner, Dan Nash, the work they're doing um, across the U.S. in that training center. Hey, before we go, I also wanted to give a shout out to a um, good friend of mine, Christy Neal. I, uh, this week, back on Christy's podcast, the Everyone Has a Voice podcast. I'll put a link to that so you can check out my appearance on that. I'm actually first of three appearances in the month of December with Christy talking about uh, all kinds of issues from, from uh, overcoming pornography addiction to rebuilding marriages and trust and just had some great conversations with Christy. So I'll link to that in the show notes and planning on getting Christy uh, back on in January uh, on the Unmasked podcast to uh, continue the conversation. So, uh, hey, make sure you come back for next week, episode number 42 of Unmasked. We're going to have Ed Lane on. Who is Ed Lane, you ask? I mean, Ed is just, um, well, he is a former lawyer who truly pretty much gave up everything, gave up his career, sold everything, lives in Florida, and is now preaching the gospel to, to people. And he's past handing out Bibles to the people he comes across on the streets in Florida. It's it's a pretty cool story that he's got, and it's amazing the work that he's doing uh, in, in, on behalf of the kingdom. So um, come back next week for, for Ed's journey. All right, everybody. Listen, thank you so much for coming on this journey with me. I'm so glad you're here. Here we are, the month of December. Let's make it a good month. And uh, hey, before we go, remember, Jesus did not come to hang out with the saints and the righteous. He came to hang out with the sick and the sinners of the world, just like you and just like me. Have a great week, everybody. 